0: Welcome to the BG Podcast, conversations at the intersection of business, community, and public policy from the Austin metro and around Texas. You can find this episode and prior recordings at
1: www.binghamgp.com podcast and on iTunes and Google Play. Hello and welcome to the BG Podcast. My name is AJ Bingham, CEO of Bingham Group, and our guest today is Virginia Cumberbatch, the co-founder of Rosa Rebellion, a she's also a native Austinite and longtime community advocate and author. Welcome to the show, Virginia.
0: Hi. How are you? Thank you so much for having me.
1: Well, it's always a pleasure to, to see you. I know we always joke because I feel like we see each other maybe once or twice a year uh, at uh, whatever function or thing we're going to. Um, but it's always a pleasure to see you, and I yeah, definitely keep up with your your work online and you know in the in the news as well. So.
0: Yeah, it's uh, I, I don't know. It's um, so bizarre and what still feels like a little bit of a big small town and we're both native Austinites that so we only see each other once or twice a year but um, it always brings a smile to my face because I think you're one of the first people that I met um, when I came back to Austin um, from undergrad um, back in our urbanly young professional days. Um, yeah. uh, um, it's been awesome to see your space and your voice in this space continue to grow and continue to support each other, even if from afar.
1: Yeah. And likewise, I think I, I was on uh, Instagram, Instagram the other day and I, one of the archive memories came up but it was from, it was from the launch party for the uh, Urban League Young Professionals event down in West Six, And that was, I mean, that was, yeah, that was 10 years ago. So. Yeah,
0: I know. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, I saw someone post some event um, that the Urban League Young Professionals were doing and, Um, it just kind of hit me. I was like, wow, like we, that entity has been able to be sustained for a decade. Um, Mm -hmm. and I know for me and for so many people, it was kind of a really great community lifeline. And so to know that it's still serving that purpose is really awesome.
1: Yeah. I had Kobla Teddy on the current president, um, a few episodes ago and he's rock and rolling on that end. So, Virginia, again, the main reason why this show is because we we see each other so rarely and you do such great work in the community. I wanted to highlight that and showcase uh, showcase that work and also just get some of your insights for what's going on in Austin and as it relates to Black America, right? Um, Black Lives Matter, but also just intersectionality with that and COVID and a lot of the disparities that it's highlighted nationally, but but definitely in Austin, economically and health wise. And just to get your take, maybe your personal take too and how you're doing and with everything and and definitely to highlight Rose Rebellion and what uh, you and Megan Harding, your co-founder, are looking to to do with that and into the future.
0: Sure, well, I'm sure we could spend like a whole week talking about all of those things. Um, it has certainly been an unprecedented time that I think our country obviously is being faced with, but I think what makes it feel makes us feel like the enormity or the weight of it is that the whole world is going through it. And so uh, those of us here in Austin, you know it's a micro experience, but it feels very connected. I think what has exacerbated the last two, three, four months for Black America and Black Austin is that, We were already experiencing the systemic isms and systemic inequities and inadequacies um, of our city. And so COVID did nothing but exacerbate them. COVID didn't create them. COVID didn't um, necessarily magnify them. Um, COVID exacerbated, meaning it made them deeper and wider issues, right? And as people of color, specifically Black people who are navigating those spaces and systems in Austin, there comes with that the frustration of having to navigate them all together and then the added uh, complexities of being a part of dismantling those systemic inequities. And what COVID did was it in some ways disrupted our ability to connect and to um, communicate in a way that would allow us to support and serve our community at large. Um, But I've been super grateful to be in the presence and be connected to incredible community voices and um, activists and organizers um, and just thought leaders who were really, really forthright at the very beginning, like the first two weeks that COVID was kind of top of mind to say, hey, COVID's going to affect Austin, but it's going to affect communities of color and already vulnerable communities that much more. So we need to hone in on the ways in which covid is going to have a disproportionate impact on our black and brown communities um, and i think you know so we're dealing with covid march april right and mm-hmm. then end of april into may we start to see um, again not a increase in police shootings right but just more visible police shootings right so the The impetus of the Black Lives Matter Matter movement, right, wasn't the fact that all of a sudden we were like, oh my gosh, police are murdering Black and brown people. It was now we have documentation and now we also have a way to elevate and make more visible this um, insidious and pervasive um, sort of practice that has been happening for centuries in our country. Mm-hmm. And what that's what we saw again in April and May was we saw, again, the brutalization and then viralization of, of Black bodies. And when you think about that, it's an interesting dynamic, right? Because here we are dealing with COVID. We're in quarantine. We're seeing the ways in which Black people, particularly in New York, are dying at way faster rates than our white counterparts and that's because of all the systems and then on top of that we're having to deal with the violence against black bodies.
1: Mm-hmm. You think as well and this is something uh, a few just of my you know in, in conversations I've had in the past several months with these black friends about this because the documentation part that's nothing new right. We've had uh, from you know Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, um, there have been you know, there have been countless uh, either dash cam or body cam footage, or, or I mean, all of camera. it, right? Yeah. So we have that, and so you look at that. And you, I was just we thought about what is the difference between all those things now. I think a big part of it was due to COVID, especially um, with uh, Ahmad Ab- Zab- Ahmad Marbury in May, right? Which was I saw your article about that. We'll talk, we'll talk about that as well. But May, you know, when people were really nationally were really, you know, everyone was still in full on lockdown mode, right? Yet a lot more folks just, everything, life stopped, right? A lot of this actually social activities and things that would have normally made things like that as in the past kind of passing moment thing, maybe a day or two or a few hashtags and then it's gone to life stopped and now you're fully focused on what's in front of you. And then it became very, I mean, at least to me, as it looked like, right? People I talked to about it because that's the only thing I can see that's different between all, all the other times this has happened, and, we'll, and honestly, will happen again. It's not going to something new, um, yeah, and, I, and, I, it, and I, it has, right? And now wow. is the fact that it stopped. And the insidiousness to me is, as we're seeing right now, I've seen few. I've, I've, I've seen a few posts about this this morning, and we're recording this on July 5th. Already, I feel it's waning, right? It was nothing. I mean, I was always. I think a lot of black America was, you know, we saw this as time in a moment thing and maybe hopefully change comes out of it. And I still hope it does. But in terms of the national conversation, I feel our country can only handle one of those at any time. And I feel it just, no particular reason, but I feel we'll see the next few months bring saw Kanye and now for president. I mean, You're seeing stuff, all these little things that are, and then COVID coming back as a, as a thing. It, was, it never disappeared. The second resurgence in Texas and California, other parts of the country where how much black guys matter obviously always matter us. And, you know, it goes beyond that movie. This, it mattered to our core, it's who we are, right? to our fam, our parents, our families, our children will be. But for, the, you know, national America, like, you know, how much, you know, going into the fall, right? Going to real change where you need policy changes, not just, you know, kneeling at congressional events or paying on the streets, so those important symbolic things. But lasting through until November, when not only the presidency is up, but congressional seats and Senate seats, right? When that real change and influence has to happen, and I worry about that—that that, that the nation can't hold this, you know, line for it to happen.
0: Yeah, I mean, we we've never been a culture of one that can really sustain things for much longer than our attention span, and obviously, social media has even you know. Um, exacerbated that our attention span is even smaller. But it, it, I, I don't disagree with you in the, le- um, in the least. I've been having similar conversations that perhaps what allowed this moment to be a little bit more visceral and a little bit more vision um, driven was the fact that these social entertainment and even political distractions that keep certain conversations and narratives only in the news cycle for so long, but not even the news cycle hold in our sort of institutional memory for so long, right? Or no longer at play, right? We can, and part of the way that privilege functions is the privilege to opt out of conversations as Black Americans, as communities of color, it's part of our lived experience, right? So we don't necessarily get to opt out of it it's not just a political conversation, it's not just a social conversation, it's a part of our lived reality. As white America, part of the privilege of being white in America is not necessarily having to participate or partake in the conversation and certainly not be a part of the work to dismantle institutional racism. I think what this moment did was it offered the perfect storm in the sense that you could no longer turn the channel to watch the NBA Finals or the Tokyo Olympics, or go to the lake with your friends, right? It was a constant conversation in your social media platforms, your communities on the Zoom call, right? And that disruption, right? That That's the, the work behind protest. That's the work behind activism. It's to disrupt your normative behaviors and your normative practices. And so, that is what is necessary in order to shift a system, to shift our paradigms, and to shift our cultural practices. We have to be disrupted because, in essence, the systems that we're a part of, education, financial, housing, were never built for people that look like you and me, and they certainly don't bend easily. And so it requires the disruption and then hopefully the dismantling of the ways that those systems have historically functioned.
1: I like it, you know, um again. An article you had in May you brought this idea of like uh, self proclaimed liberalism, liberalism, and uh, just I wanted you to expand on that. We'll, we'll include the articles of your past articles from the Statesman in the in the show notes. But can you expand on on just I mean it's self explanatory to a degree, but just your idea, your thoughts on self proclaimed liberalism on a personal level, but also on a city level. Um, you know we're we're both again native Austinites. I think. I look at peer, our pure cities like Seattle, Denver, you know, uh, San Francisco, Nashville, San Francisco, um, as being you know well, particularly you know quote unquote liberal cities and conservative states, right? But yeah. just we can get into that, but I want to only expand on that part and and yeah, I'm interested in
0: this conversation with yeah. you as well as someone who's that's why I uh, heard the show very politically apt. Um, yeah, so I mean, just to give a little bit of context, I wrote this article called "Will You Run with Me" or "Will You Run White?" A letter to White Austin, um, and it was birthed out of my own sort of internal conversations um, that I've been having over the past few weeks, as it pertained specifically to the Ahmaud Arbery murder, um, where across the country, people um, Ahmaud's uh, family asked folks to do a run in his honor. and Who was he
1: for those who maybe don't remember? Who was he? Say it again, I'm
0: sorry. Who was he, Uh, yeah, who was he? Ahmaud Arbery was a young man that was jogging in his own neighborhood. Black young man, he was um, apprehended in quotation marks by two, uh, three white gentlemen. um, And they accused him of trespassing on a house in the neighborhood that was under construction and there was a confrontation. Um, Ahmad, who had no reason to, to stop and ask their questions, um, answer their questions, or, and they had no right to apprehend him um, as they were just civilians. Um, as he ran away and he was on a jog in his neighborhood, they shot him and he died. Um, and so that sparked national outrage and obviously national questions around this interaction of like the power and privilege and like potency of like what white power looks like, right? When you think you have the power to question a black body that um, in your space and to question um, black people um, in a way that you feel like you can not only stop them but also take their life. And I, you know, having consumed news constantly because of the work that I do, but then also just as a black woman, I found myself like more angry and enraged than I had ever been before uh, after learning of a similar occurrence. And I, I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was. And I think it was because it struck a nerve as a black woman living in a predominantly white city for her whole life outside of college and hearing similar sentiments from like, stories of my mother who is an avid runner and we lived in all almost exclusively white neighborhoods growing up and my mom telling me you know after a run like this white woman followed me in her car for 20 minutes a man stopped me and asked if i was lost right because there's this perception that your black melanated body is out of place in this space because we've deemed this space to be a space for a certain um identity and that identity is white and that identity is wealthy. Um, and so that idea, that interaction of like blackness in spaces really, really struck me. And I think um, the title of the article and the subsequent, um, I ended it with um, a sort of a challenge is birthed out of um I this very pervasive ethos and narrative that Austin and cities like it have created for themselves, which is that we're so progressive, we're so liberal, keep Austin weird, right? On the surface, that looks like, hey, we we vote mostly as democratic in this city, which is in opposition to the rest of the state. And it's, you know, we're cool and calm and collected, and our culture doesn't stick to these traditional Understandings of what it means to be a Texan, and we are we are Music City, and we love art and musicians, right? But what I have come into contact with in the thirty-plus years being reared here is that that understanding of liberalism and progressivism is really in its like nature a facade, right? It's maybe how we vote, but it doesn't have a um, an actual, actual impact on the lived experience of everyone in this city. Because in my mind, you can't be progressive and innovative and be one of the most economically segregated cities in the country. You can't be progressive and, li- and liberal, quote, right, and have one of the largest communities of people experiencing homelessness in the state, right? Those things don't, can't live hand in hand. So that says that there is something awry with how we perceive ourselves and the ways in which we're actually making decisions and cultivating um, a culture that actually truly honors and values everyone's life and is an ethos of equity, right? Do you think about it, right? One of the biggest things is I kind of jokingly say it's like people are like, yeah, but I I voted for Beto. I'm like, that does not opt you out of (laughs) the accountability that... When it came time to vote for building affordable housing in West Austin, you said no. When it came time to build a transportation system that ran through your neighborhood so that people who lived in East Austin or people who have been economically displaced in the city, right, could, could commune and work in your area, you said no. So you can't, you can't have both ways. You can't say I voted for Barack and Beto, like the double Bs, and that exonerate you from the decisions you're making in your workplace, the decisions you're making on your ballot, and the decisions you're making in your community that, at the end of the day, say that you do not value communities of color. You do not value people who um, have not been able to financially prosper in this city. And that, to me, is very much aligned. That's a microcosmic narrative to what we're experiencing on a national level, right? That we, as a country, have not even ever truly taken responsibility and accountability. We're we're the greatest country in the world. We do all these innovative things. We're liberal, we're the land of the free. Yet we have never taken responsibility for um, displacing indigenous people. We've never taken responsibility for 400 years of slavery or Jim Crow or redlining, right? These all still have a very visceral impact on the way our lives are being played out now. And we've never taken responsibility. We've never truly acknowledged it and then therefore never reprinted or apologized. And for those living in Austin, we have the same issue. The 1928 plan is something that is still very much tied to the ways in which our city functions. It was a plan that took the freedmen towns, which were, we just celebrated Juneteenth, as we all know, Texas got the tweet late, so we didn't mm-hmm. find out we were, we were free until two years later, and built beautiful, amazing Black freedom towns in what we now know of as West Austin, Clarksville, like Clarksville, Wheatsville, right? Wheatsville isn't just a made-up name for a grocery store. It's where Black people lived. And in 1928, the city said, you know what? This is prime real estate, and we want it, and we want to sell it to white people who can pay a lot more for it. So we're going to create a negro district and all black and brown people have to move east east of what we now know of as i-35 at the time east avenue there was nothing on the east side except untenable land the to the trash dump right and now we know east austin for what it is now and now we're seeing a new type of displacement it's not through policy it's through economy right but the folks living in those, these now multi-million dollar homes in Clarksville and Wheatsville and West Austin, most of them know nothing of the history of the, the spaces in, that they live in. And what that does is it creates a short-term memory, right? It clouds our collective memory and then I think misinforms us about how we got to where we are. Right, it misinforms us that the reason why Black and brown children don't have the same level of uh, quality of education in Austin is because we have reallocated most of the resources west of 35. The reason why health disparities exist because we have food deserts, right? It's because we never had a hospital in the past 20 years on the east side of Austin. Without that history, without that understanding as a city or a nation, our collective memory cannot inform then hopefully our collective efforts to create an equitable community. Um, And so my charge in that article was that like, hey, Austin, I'm kind of really tired, and therefore um, not really concerned with your self-proclaimed liberalism if it doesn't amount to the actual justice and equity of everyone who lives in this city, right? Leave the, the moniker and the title at the door unless you're going to create intentional, right, and disruptive change in the city.
1: So I think the most glaring example of everything you just said, and it's well said, thorough, is Texas Relays. And for those who don't know, uh, Texas Relays is a national or international elite track event that's held and ho- hosted and held in, in Austin. It's held over at UT's uh, Meyer Stadium. And um, it's just an event that, it's over the last several years, several decades, it's happened, I guess, I keep forgetting it's 2021, it's uh, at least since the nineties, I was aware of it. Right. But it was, as far as I can remember, even from high school, um, just really unofficially, you know, became a, like a black cultural event. Right. I mean, I remember seeing just in high school, a lot of my, you know, my friends, classmates were going to the relays the day. It was like a, you know, just, you're, you're going there, it's like blues and the green kind of thing. You're not, most people aren't going there to see the track meet, it's because it's just the place to be, right? And the parties, they're played with that. They happened, but you saw with those events, just a definite uptick, increase in the, in the black population of Austin, even for a weekend, right? And I'd almost relate it to, and this is before my time, but kind of the, uh, like, Kappa Beach Party in Houston, or down, in the, or down in the, on the coast, right? Padre. Right, remember those? Which is before my time, but I heard about that. Just a, is a thing, and so any, of
0: these things. What? Yeah,
1: I'm a little older than you, though. That's probably <laughs> 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 so. In, the, in any event, um, you know, it became. It's just it was a very unofficially a a lot of like a lot you know black aligned events that majority of black events were happening around around the relays, right? You know, the relays is an open event to everyone. It wasn't a quote unquote black thing, and with that. Just from what I remember, you started seeing, I remember seeing articles about, and it was, I mean, it, it was, you know, I gotta go ahead and find them, it, but it's just a, a lot of business, businesses that closed on, West, or on East 6th Street at the time, where East 6th Street was the, it's been, it's the historic, historic uh, commercial district in Austin, I'm sorry, commercial entertainment district in Austin. But you saw a lot of that. And again, you know, I don't personally, I don't look to racism as the first thing. I don't, I don't look, I don't automatically assume that from first actions, right? But I do like, you know, kind of narrow down what could it not be, right? If racism was like the last thing I look at, what are the other things it could be? And in this case, I'm like, well, let's see, what's the, what's the difference here? We have all these events that come to town, Austin, even the 90s, right, that bring a lot of people here. And uh, I was gesturing at that. <laughs> we have people here, and this is the only one that brings a lot of black people here, and all these businesses are closing that happens, and they don't close when the Republic of Texas biker rally comes, biker rally comes to town, or South by or ACL. Then what's the difference? I'm being rhetorical, but what is the yeah. difference here, right? Like, what could it be? I don't know, I don't know right? And you look at that, like, well, okay. And then to hear all your points, though, it's just how liberal are we and accepting are we if this is how it's we, and you know it's known, right?
0: I mean, I I, didn't even, like, I challenge sometimes even our language around things. It's like accepting. Like, that shouldn't even be in our vocabulary. We shouldn't have to accept a human being, right? We certainly shouldn't have to accept a human being who helped create the city that we live in, right? That helped build the institutions that we have marked as landmarks, that helped create the cultural sort of ecosystem that we now know of as Austin. We shouldn't have to accept them. They are naturally a part of the social and economic fabric of our city, right? So this is about challenging and, um, and recalibrating our understandings of who gets, to, who gets to create a sense of power and navigate the city completely and authentically themselves, and who is siloed in a way where they are limited in the way they get to navigate the city and where in the city they get to navigate right and so the texas relays is a prime example of um, last time i checked money is green right so the idea of getting the economic um output of acl or the economic output of the the biker rally should be the same as economic output that drew thousands of people from all over the state for texas relays right but instead we've created these narratives of perceived danger and perceived difference and perceived um othering, right, of certain communities. Um and you know, which I think is why it's so important for us to stop and interrogate our own practices. It's really often right where we talk about like, oh those are, those are- isolated events of real racists like what's it like you know people like well she's sort of racist there's no such thing as being sort of racist there's no such thing as being like a real racist and like a semi-racist like you know we all have prejudice yes right we all have bias right but the act of racism right is either is can be interpersonal and the way in which we interact with systems right and so I always say that we have two options we're either a part of maintaining systems of oppression or dismantling systems of oppression and everyone in austin has the opportunity to make that decision if they're going to be a part of maintaining them or dismantling them closing your business down because of perceived disillusions around what communities of color bring into the city of austin right is a part of maintaining a system of oppression right and Again, my call in that article was for all of us to really consider and interrogate, right? Not just hang our hat on this idea of liberalism and progressivism, right? So it's really easy to just participate and, like, yeah, I did my job. I voted blue all the way down the ballot, right? Or I voted around my values and consciousness. And so I did it, right? And not take into consideration, right? Like, you had you're making decisions in your law office, you're making hiring decisions in your tech office, you're making decisions about the ways in which people feel like they have a sense of belonging in your community, right? Are they being a part of maintaining systems of oppression or dismantling systems of oppression? Um, And so I think we're at a juncture in our city history and, and definitely in our national history where we can no longer um, be a part of a narrative that doesn't necessitate you actually shifting some of your own practices and pedagogies, right? I have lovely white peers, lovely white friends, people I grew up with, people I grew up with who have extreme privilege, went to, we went to prep school together, went to the best schools in the country together, right? And are now sitting in spaces of extreme privilege and access, Right, none of that means much, right? If we are not interrogating the ways in which our paradigms and our understandings of this community are not shaped in a way where we're every day trying to figure out how we are participating in creating a city that is one of equity.
1: So, I want to switch gears and talk about your new or less related to your newest efforts uh, with Rosa Rebellion and explain what that is and what you and your co founder are looking to achieve with it.
0: Cool. Yeah, thank you so much for giving me the space to share that um, on this platform and, um, again, for just the conversations that you are participating and helping to elevate. Um, so we founded Rose Rebellion two years ago in 2018. Um, myself and Megan Harding, who a, has a long history in Austin. She's a double Longhorn. She went there for undergrad and law school. Um, and had an incredible impact on the Austin landscape. She and her husband, Vincent Harding, um, I think he was like the youngest uh, Democratic chair for Travis Char- County.
1: Char- yeah, it was. Um,
0: and now they live in Houston with their beautiful young baby boy. Um, and Megan and I really started to connect. Um, after a mutual best friend of ours had moved and we're really just interested in like how we could support each other in our professional and community spaces and in conversation realized that we were experiencing similar things right she's a civil rights attorney so she's working in systems right that for the most part have historically um, had an impact on black and brown lives I'm working for another type of institution the University of Texas who has its own very layered history around racial dynamics, Um, but my work is about how to leverage, right, those resources to create equity in the community, and I think in this conversation of, like, organizing and activism and community advocacy, there's kind of a certain picture that gets attached to what that looks like, right? It's folks that are on the front lines, on the ground 24-7, and yet, I strongly believe that you need folks in every space doing that work and being disruptive inside institutions and outside of them. And so that dynamic kept coupled with sort of the idea of creativity and innovation and what activism looks like. I'm a writer and a storyteller. Hagan has a background in storytelling through film. And we felt like there wasn't a place that truly captured and helped to elevate what we have coined as the term of creative activism. So Rosa Rebellion is a platform um, by and for women of color who were performing what we call creative activism, which means they are using media and art and um, writing and storytelling as a way to be disruptive in normative systems and normative uh, spaces right? So if we look at the media space, 80% of opt-eds are written by white males. If we look at policy change, right, um, and the ways in which women of color oftentimes our stories are siloed um, or co-opted. And so um, we launched officially at South by Southwest last year. Um, we launched our first project. South by was super generous, gave us a full day of programming. Our first project was Rebel and Rest, which focused on giving a space of rest and um, reprieve for black activists who are on the front lines and oftentimes very under-resourced so they're not taking care of their own mental health and wellness. Um, We have two projects that we're launching this um, this summer and fall, um, a podcast called Gen Activists which will be a a space for intergenerational dialogue around conversations of um, creative activism and conversations around what it means to be a co-agitator um, similar to what I've been talking about in conversation with you AJ um, you know we've gotten I feel like we use the word ally and sometimes I feel like ally can often kind of lull us into this posture of complacency and apathy where we're like yeah I'm with you yeah all the you know your life matters girl and then But like, what's the action behind that? Like, what does that look like every day? And so the idea of co-agitating really for us brings up this visual of like, how are you agitating the spaces and systems you're in? How are you being an irritant, right? Because the systems need to actually function differently. Um, And so we're doing a lot of projects um, around that concept of co-agitation. So we're really excited. We've just had wonderful response um, the past, year and a half. We've got some incredible partners. Uh, We're working with Blue Lemon right now around um, a few of our projects, including the Rebel and Rest Project. And yeah, we just really hope that we can be a voice for women of color. And that's for the full diaspora, whoever self-identifies as a as a woman of color, um, and helping to elevate and amplify our voices. Because if we look at the history of revolutions and resistance, Uh, Women of color have always been in the forefront, but our stories are oftentimes not told and not documented and not a part of our collective conscience. And so we hope to be a part of the work um, that makes sure that our voices are seen and documented and known.
1: Got it, Virginia, I wanna thank you for your time. I know you're a busy woman, a lot of things going on virtual these days, and I hope at some point in the near future, we can can connect in, in person. Um, Virginia Coverbatch is a community advocate, author, co-founder of Rose Rebellion, and a native Austinite. Where'd you go to high school, by the way? It's people, like, shout out to your your, high, your alma mater.
0: Uh, shout out to the Spartans at Saint Stephen's.
1: Oh, Saint Stephen's.
0: <laughs> <laughs> like I don't think we have a cheer or anything like that. Uh, yeah, shout out yeah. to. the Spartans.
1: I think yeah. I, I went to I lived in the same neighborhoods when your one of your classmates growing up. So so I uh siobhan your mom was a dance oh, teacher yeah so. come on. Yeah, yeah her mom was taught she da- tap a, teacher.
0: She was, I was, we graduated together she's in my class
1: yeah street dance so yeah
0: yeah, yeah, got, yeah it, got, got it
1: got it got it Small world. Yeah. all right well virginia thank you for your time and uh have a great rest of your day
0: thank you so much everybody. i appreciate it Thank you for listening to today's BG podcast. You can find this episode and prior recordings at www.binghamgp.com podcast and iTunes and Google
1: Play. Subscribe to stay current on future posts.